Welcome to Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom, the podcast where I speak with people who see the wrong in the world and are driven to make it right. Today, I have the distinct privilege of speaking with one of my personal heroes in the fight to reform our criminal legal system from top to bottom. Over the last 40 years, we've spent several trillion dollars on the war on drugs. And yet, 40 years later, the usage rates of dangerous drugs has gone up in this country. At some point, you have to ask yourself, all of these bureaucrats who are profiting off of and managing the system, are they just stupid? Or are they just pursuing different goals than the ones they've told us all along? As founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps, he aims to strip away the mechanisms that unjustly affect primarily poor communities of color. Alikar Katsanis, right now on Righteous Convictions. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome back to Righteous Convictions. This is the show where I get to interview people who are, well, doing righteous things in the world. And as it happens, sometimes I get to interview my personal heroes. Today is one of those days. You've heard me talk about him before. Alec Karakatsanis is doing the most profound work of anyone I know in the world of criminal legal reform in the United States. And Alec, welcome to Righteous Convictions. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I've been uh, almost like your sort of adjunct PR person, and I've been a very vocal supporter of your work, and uh, very proud to have provided some of the seed funding for your organization, Civil Rights Corps, and we're going to talk about that as we go along. But this story goes back to, well, Yale and Harvard, sort of humble beginnings (laughs) in terms of your academia. Um, Yale undergrad and Harvard Law School, where, of course, Alec served as the Supreme Court chair of the Harvard Law Review. So what happened after you graduated? This is sort of really the origin story that I think is so important for people to hear. And you tell it in your book, and the book is Usual Cruelty. What was your first move after Harvard Law School? I went down to Alabama, and one of my mentors, the great civil rights hero, Lonnie Guineer, had suggested that I work for a very particular judge in Montgomery, Alabama. And so I spent a year working closely with that judge who had been one of the first black federal judges appointed in in the region by President Carter. And I spent a year sort of working with that judge and, and seeing up close how the federal criminal punishment system works. And then I decided to stick around in Alabama and became a public defender. I was representing very poor people who were accused of federal crimes in Alabama. And 
the vast majority of these cases were representing people who had been caught possessing some plant that's on a list of plants that the federal government says you can't possess. And they've been separated from their children and their families and their loved ones and their jobs and their homes and their schools and placed in a cage, a cage that was full of feces and mold and mucus and urine and and no medical care and no fresh air, no sunlight, really a torturous environment, constant beatings by police who run the jail. I also represented a lot of undocumented people. Those are my clients. And I used to go to these sentencing hearings and, you know, a bunch of lawyers from this entity called the Department of Justice, you know, it's an interesting Orwellian phrase, right? They want you to think that the purpose or effect of this system of mass human caging is to do justice, right? It's kind of like when the U.S. government renamed the Department of War to become the Department of Defense because they wanted to frame everything that they were doing as about being sort of defensive in nature. Same thing has happened throughout the war on drugs and the modern mass incarceration movement. Early on, it was framed very explicitly as as a war on poor people, a war on hippies, a war on black people, undocumented people. And then over time, it was portrayed to the public as actually being about public safety. Police departments started developing slogans like to serve and to protect, and they started marketing themselves as actually about public safety when throughout previous hundred years, they'd actually marketed themselves as a means of controlling the poor and controlling immigrants, brutalizing people who are organizing around labor or women's rights or the civil rights movement. It's really interesting to watch that shift. And I came into this system right as Michelle Alexander was writing her seminal book, The New Jim Crow, really an attempt to take back some of that narrative. It's not a justice system. It's actually a system that is about controlling certain segments of our population. And that's the brutal reality that I walked into as a young 25-year-old person becoming a public defender in Alabama. And there's a profound story that I've heard you tell about spending a day in a courtroom down there, which I guess you went into as a learning experience, but it came out, well, that's exactly what it turned out to be, but it turned out to be a whole lot more, right? Yeah, you know, after I left my job as a public defender in Alabama, I, I then went to be a public defender in Washington, D.C. and saw many of the same things. And after a couple of years of doing that, I decided I wanted to, to quit my job as a public defender and really attack these systems much more systemically. So I actually got a grant from Harvard Law School. And the first thing I did with that grant is I flew back to Alabama and I just started going around the state sitting in courtroom after courtroom, documenting what I was seeing. You know, I was actually wearing a hooded sweatshirt and just sort of blending in in the back of the courtrooms. And then after court, I would be following people out with their families and interviewing their families or going up into the jail, interviewing people. And I'll never forget, you know, the first day I came back to Montgomery before I visited all my old friends there. And I went to the local municipal court, the lowest level court there in Montgomery. And, and I walked in that morning. It was a winter morning. I saw 67 human beings in jail garb and metal chains. And as I watched, not one of them was accused of a crime. They were all there in that local courtroom because they owed money to the city for unpaid debt, old traffic tickets and things like that. And one by one, I watched them come up to the court and essentially beg for their lives. You know, they would say things like, Your Honor, I am a homeless veteran. I don't have any place to go. I can't pay you. Please don't put me in a cage. And the judge would say, pay me $1,000 or you're going to jail. And then another woman would come up and say, I, I have four children, Your Honor. One of my children has a serious disability. Please don't take me away from them. And he would order them in jail. And I, I saw another man get down on his knees in the courtroom, begging for mercy, saying he had been homeless and 
addicted to drugs and he just didn't have the money to pay his old tickets. He was jailed. And so, you know, for reasons I won't get into on this podcast, I was actually removed from the courtroom. And uh, I guess you're not allowed to just make objections randomly from the back of a courtroom if you're not a lawyer in the case. But it was just such an outrageous experience. And then so then I, I just actually walked right down the hallway next door to the jail. And I just started calling out the names of the people that I had seen in court before I was kicked out. And I met with five people that day, I actually met with five people before they they figured out what I was doing and kicked me out of the jail. You know, the first woman I met, Charnel Mitchell, had a one-year-old child and a four-year-old child had been sitting on her couch on a Sunday night with her one-year-old in her lap and her four-year-old next to her when the police raided her home with guns and metal chains. And they arrested her and they literally took her away from her two little children because she owed traffic tickets from four years prior. And she had had the misfortune of like so many hundreds of thousands of people throughout this country have been put on a payment plan with a private company for her traffic tickets because she couldn't afford them. And when she couldn't pay the extra fees the company was charging, the company put an arrest warrant out for her. And I met her after about a couple of weeks in jail and she had no idea where her children were. And she showed me her court document. Her court document said, pay us $2,807 or do 59 days in jail. And Charnel explained to me that in Montgomery, if you couldn't afford your debts, you sat out your debt was the term she used for $50 a day. So if you owed a hundred bucks, you'd have to do two days in jail. If you had a thousand bucks, 20 days in jail, right? And Charnel owed $2,807 with all the fees from the private company tacked on. So they told her she had to do 59 days in jail before she could figure out what's going on with her kids. And on the back of her court document, one of the jail guards had been nice enough to give her a pencil and she'd been writing the days one through 59. And each day she'd been writing like $50, $50. And some days she was writing $75 and $75. And then on the right-hand side, she was keeping a tally and subtracting all these, these dollar amounts from her debt. And I asked her what she was doing. And she said, well, on ordinary days, you get $50. But if you agree to be a janitor for the city and you clean the, the feces and the blood and the mold, urine from the floor where you're sleeping on top of a bunch of other women next to the toilets and on the floors. If you clean the judge's bathroom, they give you an extra $25 a day. So Montgomery had this army of people. And keep in mind, out of the 67 people I saw in court in this debtor's prison, all of them were black. So the city had an army of impoverished black people who were doing its janitorial labor on the threat of being separated from their families and thrown in jail. And Charnel finished telling me the story. She had been crying and her tears smudged this, this court document, all this pencil. And I took a photograph of it. And that day, Charnel and the other people I met became my first few clients as a civil rights lawyer. And we filed. I had no idea what I was doing, Jason. I'd never really done a case like this before. And I just filed this federal class action lawsuit in federal court in Montgomery. And within a few weeks, we had this big hearing and the federal judge was so upset at what had been going on. He ordered all the city officials to appear in front of him, including the local judge, and explain how they could be doing this because it's so illegal and unconstitutional. Instead of doing that, they just released all these people from the jail in a single day. And that was a profound experience for me because, you know, how far has this country come where right now there are about 450,000 human beings in jail cells on any given night in this country just because they can't make a cash payment, where it's become so normalized that a major town like Montgomery can just release everybody from its jail on a single day without any care in the world. And as soon as I won that case, I started 
investigating this going on elsewhere. I saw Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. I went to Ferguson, embedded myself with a lot of the people who were organizing there. The great local organization called Arch City Defenders and a bunch of organizers who were in the streets every single night protesting his death. And it, and it became clear that in Ferguson, they averaged 3.6 arrest warrants per household for unpaid debt, almost all of them for a black person. So this is a city that had almost completely converted its police force into a debt collection agency. And I saw the same thing throughout Tennessee, Texas, Louisiana, California, Pennsylvania, Michigan, everywhere I went over the next few years, filing lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit against these places. We saw the same thing. Police, prosecutors, and judges had completely converted the local criminal systems into a mass assembly line processing to extract money and coerce people into pleading guilty for low-level criminal offenses. I mean, obviously, I'm familiar with so many aspects of your story, and I quote you uh, frequently. And often when I do, I say, Plum, you sound crazy. And then I go research it, and all this shit is true. So after these profound experiences that you had, you went and started an organization called Equal Justice Under Law. The first organization I started was called Equal Justice Under Law, although now I started a new sort of larger organization called Civil Rights Corps that I started in 2016. I think, you know, we have a particular set of skills as lawyers and as legal professionals, but I don't really think these are problems that can be solved by lawyers. These are deep structural problems in our society that require a social movement to really change the way people think. You know, for example, most people have absolutely no idea what the police do. They've been propagandized and sold all this misinformation. Did you know that police only spend 4% of all of their time and money on things that the police call violent crime? 96%, all the stuff they spend their money on, all their time, is things that not even the police call violent, right? You look at a city like Portland, take you know one example, over half of all police arrests in Portland are for people who are homeless. The number one charge in many major American cities, number one arrest, driving on a suspended license. There are 11 million people in this country who don't have a driver's license, not because they're bad drivers, but because they owe debt, right? And that's the number one charge in many jurisdictions. The number two charge, possession of marijuana, trespassing by people who are very poor, right? This is the reality of our legal system. So what I wanted to do was think about how could lawyers contribute to a movement that changes the way people understand and think about the punishment bureaucracy. Make no mistake, this is a giant, profitable bureaucracy. At every single stage of this bureaucracy, from the police officers on the street, the companies that make all the software and surveillance technology and tasers and guns and body cameras for the police, the, the company that makes body cameras for police earns billions of dollars, right? And that's just one little item that police have, right? But one of the points I want to make is whether it's the police, whether it's defense attorneys, prosecutors, judges, probation officers, parole officers, all of the companies that profit off of prison and jail phone call and medical care and the companies that have free labor in prison, every single stage of every single element of this system, there is an entrenched set of interests, the multi-billion dollar for-profit money bail industry, the private prison industry. Then there are millions of people who are public employees who depend on the system growing bigger every single year for their own salary. We have spent trillions of dollars on this system in the last 40 years. And so what I wanted to do was figure out how do we inform the public about this giant waste that is this system? You take the so-called war on drugs, right? 
over the last 40 years, we've spent several trillion dollars on the war on drugs, right? We've arrested tens of millions of people, put them in prison for hundreds of millions of years, separated tens of millions of children from their parents, shot and killed tens of thousands of people, firebombed and spray bombed with chemicals, uh, millions of acres of pristine rainforest throughout Latin America. We've surveilled the communication of literally billions of people around the world. We have done all of these negative things and many, many more, right? Police take more property from people in drug-related civil forfeiture than all burglary, theft, robbery, property crime combined in the U.S., right? So police are actually taking more property from people than all of those property crimes combined. All of this is in the name of the war on drugs. And yet, 40 years later, the usage rates of dangerous drugs has gone up in this country. The usage rates of dangerous drugs by children has gone up. And so at some point, you have to ask yourself, all of these bureaucrats who are profiting off of and managing the system, the police, the judges, the probation officers, the parole officers, the prosecutors, are they just stupid? Do they just not understand that these trillions of dollars and all of these destroyed lives are not doing anyone any good and they're actually making us less safe? Or are they not stupid at all? Are they sophisticated? Are they just pursuing different goals than the stories that they've told us about public safety, right? And what my career has shown me, this criminal legal system, what people call the criminal justice system, it's not broken. It's functioning exactly as these people intend it to function. They're just pursuing different goals than the ones they've told us all along. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. One of the things that I've watched you do with an appropriate, I think, sense of awe is filing and winning these lawsuits focused on the unconstitutionality of money bail. Yeah, so once we were in Ferguson and we did that Alabama case that I was just talking about, and these courts were all agreeing with us that it's not only morally wrong, but also unconstitutional to put a human being in a cage just because that person can't pay a fine or a fee, right? Post-conviction. So if you have been convicted of a running a stop sign or speeding and or drug possession or whatever it is, and they give you a fine of $100, if you're too poor to pay $100, it's unconstitutional to put you in a jail cell. And yet that was happening every single day all over the country. As we were winning those cases, it occurred to me that the same constitutional problem is really at the core 
of the American money bail system. The only difference is that money bail is what happens to you before you're even convicted of anything. So the police arrest you for something, you're brought to jail all over the country. As I mentioned, there is over 400,000 people in this situation right now. You're told you're free to go home to your family, to your job, to your school, to your church. All you have to do is hand us cash on the way out. And for several million people every single year in this country, they're unable to hand over that cash because they're very poor. And so millions of people are jailed, not because anyone has found them to be necessarily jailable, but because they're poor. And so we started in 2015 with the case of Christy Don Varden, whose story I tell in the book, challenging this system. And the first 10 months of 2015, we brought something like 12 lawsuits in 12 different cities on this, and we kept winning all these lawsuits. And we started then filing lawsuits in bigger and bigger places. Houston, Texas, which in our Houston case has been getting probably between 16 and 18,000 people out of jail every single year in Houston alone who are charged with misdemeanors who would have been jailed prior to our lawsuit because they couldn't pay a couple hundred dollars. And that's just Houston. We've done this all over the country, making a very simple argument. No human being should be caged because she can't make a payment. Yeah, it's interesting because you said the words that these people weren't necessarily jailable. But in fact, I would go further and say that the system had already decided that it was not necessary to jail them because we were willing to let them be free, but only if they had money. So they weren't dangerous. They just were poor or broke. And we live in a country where I think approximately 40% of Americans don't have access to $400 in cash. So for those people, homelessness is one mishap away, right? One bad day away, one accident, a fall, maybe loss of a job or some other misfortune. And they're very likely on the streets. And of course, you know, people say, well, we have to have bail. And I'm interested to see how you respond to this. I'm sure people have brought this up to you. Someone says, well, what if a guy goes and uh, sprays a McDonald's with bullets, right? Or some other horrible scenario, right? Which of course are the outliers, but it does happen. What do you do with that? Do you just release that person back to the streets? So yeah, I mean, I think that this is a really interesting and important question. The first important way to answer that question is to say almost none of what police prosecutors and judges do has to do with that example you gave. As I mentioned, only 4% of all police time and only 5% of all police arrests are for things that the police and the FBI call violent. So one of the problems of the system is it's so flooded with these low-level cases that are not about public safety at all. They are about controlling poor people, controlling Black people, controlling and surveilling immigrants. The system is so flooded with those cases that it doesn't have the ability to give the care and attention it needs to the most serious cases where someone is accused of hurting someone else. And we actually know from the evidence that jail actually makes people more likely to commit crime in the future. Jail is not a way of making society more safe. And what we've learned from other countries, what we've learned from a lot of experimentation in, in isolated parts of this country is, even if someone is accused of hurting someone else physically, if you actually focus on the underlying causes of that offense, the trauma, the addiction, the mental illness, the toxic masculinity that leads to so much gender-based violence in this country, you can actually address these problems and release people with conditions and release people back into situations in the community where people are getting the care and the treatment and the attention that they need. And by the way, you know, even sheriffs and prison wardens and other people who I've talked to who, who I don't agree with on a lot of these things, even th those people by and large will say, 
only a very, very small percentage of the people who are in my jail or my prison are actual like danger to other people in society. But it is an important question. So even then, back to my scenario, you have someone who is suspected of having committed a grotesquely violent act. They're arrested at the scene of the crime with the weapon in their hands. They've just wiped out a number of people, you know, Dylan Roof, right? What should be done with someone like that upon their arrest? I want to say two things. One is more aspirational and one is a very practical answer to your question. It is my belief that our society, because of all of its inequality and violence and trauma, we create people like Dylan Roof, right? There's nothing natural about that. It is a product of the violence and the toxic masculinity and the white supremacy and the inequality and the poverty and the lead poisoning, so on and so forth, and the child abuse and the violence in our society. Like if we had a much different society where we were actually focused on giving children and other people the things that they need, I just don't believe you would see things like Dylan Roof, or at least we would see them only in extremely rare cases. But the more practical answer is, you know, I'll just give you an example. There's a coalition right now in California of people who want to reform the California bail system. It's called the Care First California Coalition. It's a coalition of survivors of violence, directly impacted people, researchers, professors, nonprofit organizations. And that coalition has produced something called preserving the presumption of innocence. And what that policy framework requires is only in situations where someone is accused of directly harming or trying to harm someone else can the state even consider putting them in jail before convicting them. And even in in those rare cases, there has to be a robust process where the court and the public defender and the prosecutor and the judge, social workers and others, they consider what other options do we have short of jailing this person to keep them and the community safe prior to their trial. And in many cases, there's answers. There's drug treatment, alcohol treatment, violence interruption services, mental health services. There's inpatient mental illness treatment. There's various forms of home confinement. There's all these different things that can be done short of jailing that person. And so if the government proves that there's nothing else it can do short of jailing a person prior to trial, then it's completely consistent with the U.S. Constitution to jail someone if the court determines that they're a danger to the community. And so that's a process that that we could have in this country. That's a process that they have in many other countries. And that would be a very reasonable, immediately implementable reform that would go a long way toward reducing the jail and prison population in this country. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. All of the same people who created and profited from the money bail system, whether it's the multi-billion dollar for-profit money bail industry or all the judges and prosecutors who use money bail to get people in jail cells so they can keep the assembly line churning because they know 
that people are only going to plead guilty and plead guilty quickly if they're stuck in jail because they want to get out. And so the whole system relies on coercing people with the threat of staying in jail into pleading guilty so they can collect fines, more fees, so they can get them back out, so they can process more cases, so the cycle can resume, right? And so one of the really interesting things over the last few years has been amazing public consciousness about the money bail system, whether it was the death of Sandra Bland in Texas jail cell or the death of Khalif Browder in New York, the teenager who was caged on Rikers and brutally beaten for three years, including a year and a half in solitary confinement because he was wrongfully accused of stealing a backpack from another child, couldn't pay money bail. These stories seeped into the popular consciousness. And along with a lot of the cases that we've been doing and a lot of the organizing work that a lot of our partners and other people around the country have been doing, many people around the country now know about the injustices in the money bail system. But what people don't understand is that those very same people who were totally happy to create and run and profit from and benefit from the money bail system for decades are still in power. Those are the very same people who are deciding what to replace the money bail system with, right? So judges, prosecutors, legislators all over the country have been responding to our victories in the money bail system by trying to pass so-called reforms that are fake. And that is really the reason I wrote the book. I wanted people to have a set of tools they could understand to evaluate whether a proposed reform to this massive bureaucracy is an actual reform that's going to help real people in their lives or is a fake reform that is just meaning to put a sort of fancy veneer of justice over all of the same outcomes. So what do I mean specifically about that with bail? Well, um, if you think about bail, we had a federal bail reform movement back in the 1960s and 70s. It was actually led by Bobby Kennedy before he was assassinated. And this movement was saying many of the same things that you and I are saying today, Jason. They were saying it's completely wrong to put a human being in a jail cell just because they can't make a payment. It's wrong. It's unconstitutional. It's barbaric. So what did they do? Well, they got rid of the money bill detention in federal courts back in 1984. They put a sentence in the federal law that says nobody can be forced to pay a money bill amount that they can't afford. At the time they did that, about a quarter of all people charged with federal crimes were jailed just because they were poor. So it was a pretty big problem. But what they did at the same time is they gave judges more discretion to detain people without money. And today, 37 years later, that 24% of people detained who are presumptively innocent, it's now 72%. So we got rid of jailing people because they were poor, and we tripled the amount to which we jail people. Guess what? If you look at the demographics of the 72% of people charged with crimes who are presumptively innocent and who are detained in federal court right now, they're even more disproportionately poor and even more disproportionately black and even more disproportionately immigrant than they were back in 1984. So the so-called reform that was done to make things so much better, stop jailing poor people, has ended up jailing poor people at more than 300% the rate. The same is true now we're seeing all over the country, the states that are trying to pass money bill reform laws, the prosecutors and judges in those states are trying to push for changes that increase their own power to detain people without money. And the bail industry and the for-profit prison industry and the prison telecom industry, which are all multi-billion dollar industries, one of which the biggest prison telecom company is actually owned by the billionaire owner of the Detroit Pistons, who is making his fortune 
by having signed contracts with jails that prohibit people from hugging their children and visiting in person with their loved ones on his theory that they'll spend more money on his phone calls if they're not allowed to actually see their loved ones. These people are combining to replace the money bail system with a system of electronic monitoring so that people might be released, instead of being released on bail, they're going to be released with a device that tracks all their movements that they have to pay for and that these multi-billion dollar corporations are going to charge monthly fees for. So they'd be making the same amount of money off the same people, but instead of calling it bail, they're going to call it electronic monitoring. So this is the reason I wanted to do this podcast and the reason I wrote the book. People need to understand that all of these injustices that, that you and I are rightly outraged by, the people that benefit from them, that cause them, they're still in power. And they are constantly thinking of fake reforms. They're going to keep all the same outcomes, but they're going to change the labels in the hope that ordinary people around this country don't notice. Yeah, it all comes down to money, it seems like. Money and cruelty. Yeah, the ankle monitors, while it seems you know, relatively benign compared to being in one of those horrendous jail cells, you know, there's a whole lot of anguish that comes with that. You know, I had a friend who's going through this, who's innocent, who's awaiting trial in uh, Nevada. And, you know, she lost her job because she was arrested. And now with the ankle monitor, she went to get a job. She was hired as a cocktail waitress and they saw the ankle monitor and fired her right away. Not to mention you have to plug it in. Basically, you have to abide by a set of rules that turns your home and your existence into just a different type of jail cell. And anything you break, of course, results in you going back to that same jail cell. But now with having spent even more money to pay for your own home confinement, it goes on and on and on. So as we wind down, um, I want to talk about how people can get involved. It's it's super simple, by the way. You can go to civilrightscore.org and there you can donate, you can read more, you can Read, read the book. Uh, and if you're not going to get the book, the book is Usual Cruelty, do what I do <laughs> regularly, which is just Google Alec Karakatsanis and Yale Law Review. And an article will come up that if you read, I promise you, if you read the first two or three pages of this, you will be more informed than half of the people I know that are working on criminal justice reform. So Google Alec Karakatsanis and Yale Law Review, read that, then go to civilrightscore.org donate, get involved. It's going to take all of us if we're going to actually tame this monster because it's it's time. It's way past time. And if it hasn't already impacted you or your family, it, it can at any moment rear its ugly head. The life you save may be your own. Just to give people other ways of plugging in, you should get involved in your local community. I would recommend finding a local mutual aid group, a local jail support network, a local court watch group where you can get together with the people in your community, actually watch what judges and prosecutors are doing, local community bail fund that is getting people out of jail. Like there's a local campaign in your area to stop the construction of a new jail or, or a local campaign to reduce the resources that are going to your police department and instead increase the resources that are going to teachers and artists and after school programs and mental health treatment and addiction treatment. Those are absolutely vital. And there are people doing that in every single city and town in this country, and you should find them and be a part of what they're doing. So this podcast, we have two traditions, two wrapped in one, which is our closing. The first part is called the magic wand question. And the magic wand question is this, if you had a magic wand and could wave it and fix one problem, what would it be? I'm going to say, if we forced our society to confront all of the problems without resort to human caging, 
we'd all be so much better and so much more connected to each other. And we'd have a much more loving and caring and less unequal society. You know, I've said this on this program before. I think the number of people that we society needs to be protected from is not zero, but it's a lot closer to zero than where we're at now. Before we go to our closing, I want to invite our audience to tune in next week when we're going to be joined by two-time NBA All-Star TV announcer and personality and assistant coach of the Miami Heat, Karan Butler, who spends his time off the court working on reforming the system that so negatively impacted his own life before he made it big. And now we go to the closing of our show, which is appropriately titled Words of Wisdom, where First of all, I thank you, Alec Arcatzanis, for joining us and for all your incredible work. And then we're all going to collectively take a moment to really just tune in to the sound of your voice for your final thoughts, or as we call them here on Righteous Convictions, words of wisdom. Thank you, Jason. I think I would just say there are a lot of really powerful institutions in our society that have a vested interest in getting you to think that they believe in equality and justice and they call themselves the justice system. And they have sold you a series of myths about what the purpose of this system is. And it's really important that you critique that. You question the things that the media is telling you. You question what you're being told about why we have police as the solution to homelessness. Why cops, prosecutors, judges, and prisons are the solution to a so-called drug problem, right? What is the reason that these systems are actually functioning? Once you ask yourself that question, I think it's really important to ask the next question, which is, what am I going to do in my own life every single day to reduce the level of inequality and violence and poverty in our society? How am I going to use this precious time on earth to make a difference for all of the human beings who are survivors of this incredibly brutal, unnecessary, wasteful punishment bureaucracy. Thank you for listening to Righteous Convictions with Jason Plum. Thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Lava for Good. You can also follow me on TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. 
Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.